Hello, and welcome to the Letters from Our Fathers podcast, where we explore the actual history of America's founding fathers from their own written words and personal correspondence, but without modern partisan political ideologies. I am your host, Roman. Now let's learn some real history. All right, everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This is the podcast where TLDR does not apply and the study of history is a way of life. As I would contend, it was a way of life for many of the founding fathers as well, including John Adams. He wrote quite a bit about that, his study of history, his collection of books that he had available to him to study that history. And we're continuing on in his style, studying some of the great history of the past, in this case, the founding fathers themselves. I hope you enjoyed the previous episode of the podcast. That episode was a... uh, I think a good look into how so many things can really attach to what the Founding Fathers were talking about, whether it's providing for the common defense or listening to General Washington and his sentiments about staying out of European affairs uh, where possible. Obviously, that that gets more difficult as time goes on because of the uh, various um, nuances of things, as I described in that previous episode. But in the case of World War I, it was uh, pretty plain and pretty clear to me anyway. Uh, might be uh, relatively ambiguous to some others, so they may think it's uh, really clear that we should have been involved. I've listened to historians argue that point. Frankly speaking, I don't get it, but they're entitled to their opinion, of course. And as always, if you have any thoughts or feelings, impressions about that particular episode, then you can leave a review on the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and I will get to those and bring them on and talk about them. I uh, typically do read the reviews on the podcast, and I bring them on here so that I can discuss them with you. Because I do think of this somewhat as a study group, and if you have some thoughts about the Founding Fathers and what they wrote, uh, questions about what the Founding Fathers wrote, questions for me and what I think about certain things, then you can, uh, something I didn't answer on the, on the episodes, then you can leave a review and I will get to that at some point. Now, today we're going to have a good episode of the podcast, I think. We're, you know, when I was a few episodes back, I was talking to you about a letter that Benjamin Franklin wrote to a Mr. Galloway about his plan for union. Uh, between the colonies and Great Britain. An interesting concept. It almost uh, actually got uh, approved by the Continental Congress, but not quite. There were some problems with it, as Benjamin Franklin had articulated. And I decided, because of that, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read to you some notes from uh, John Adams during the Continental Congress. And a lot of it is going to be around that kind of debate. And a good portion of it is going to be from Mr. Galloway. Notes that John Adams took about what Mr. Galloway had said during the Continental Congress. And then we're going to talk about it. We haven't done that a lot. We haven't gone back to the actual notes of the Continental Congress and read what they were talking about while they were there. We've read the letters that talk about it around it, but not the actual notes that John Adams took while he was sitting there in the Congress. So this will be an interesting thing to talk about here, I think, especially about that issue of union and what the thinking was behind that. What was Mr. Galloway thinking? What was his mindset? And what was his perspective? So we're going to have Mr. Galloway, more or less, as a guest on the podcast today, Uh, Or I guess more specifically, Mr. Adams is going to be our guest on the podcast, and he is going to testify to what Mr. Galloway had said during the Congress. So we are going to be going live to 1774, kind of going back in time a little bit because we're currently in 1775 with the letters from Dr. Franklin. But we're going to go back and we're going to go live to 1774, and we are going to listen to Mr. Adams uh, tell us what happened in the Continental Congress. This will be fun. I think, and I hope you're going to enjoy this episode and uh, our discussion around it. It's going to have a lot of a lot of uh, content in it around uh, 
some of the some of the deeper thinking about you know what um, what what were these founding fathers thinking would be a solution to the problem? What had been the solutions to problems like this before? And how was all this going to work out? Besides, obviously, independence and war, which they were trying to avoid. They were trying greatly to avoid, especially Mr. Galloway. And uh, you'll learn why in the next section of this uh, this particular episode. We'll talk a little bit about Mr. Galloway, give you a little introduction about him before we get started into what it was exactly that the man said. And uh, before we get into that, though, I do want to thank everybody on the uh, the podcast, on the study group, for being here and giving the Founding Fathers your attention and your time. It's valuable time. I know it's valuable time, and I appreciate it, and I know that they would appreciate you listening to their words that they said and under- trying to understand why they did what they did. I know they would appreciate you, and because of that, so do I. And I thank you for getting the word out about the podcast. As I say again, this this podcast has absolutely no budget whatsoever to, to speak of. Not really, anyway. Uh, this is a podcast that, at the present time anyway, it, it costs me money to do this podcast. It does not m- earn me any money to do this podcast, so I have no marketing department. I have no marketing budget of any kind. So really, when uh, people people find the podcast really one of two ways, they accidentally find it or somebody gets the word out about it. And for those of you out there who do get the word out about the podcast, I, I really appreciate it. And that just uh, that just means more people are listening to the to these episodes and giving the Founding Fathers their attention and their time. It's not so much giving me their attention and their time, but giving the Founding Fathers, because I'm really just trying to communicate what they were talking about, for the most part. So, big thank you to you folks out there. And, uh, you know, I wanted to mention a few of the, the states out there that are that are really uh, big supporters of the, of the podcast. I haven't done this in a while, but uh, I'll do it now. Michigan uh, has, has historically been a big supporter of this podcast, and I really appreciate you folks in Michigan. Arizona, by the way, uh, also one of the, one of the big supporters of the podcast. It's, it's not one of the most populous states, Arizona. And that would be like your, your Californias, New Yorks, Floridas, and so on and so forth. But for, for its size, Arizona is a, is a very large supporter of the of this podcast. Uh, much appreciated. And for for the rest of you states out there, uh, the fifty states, and of course those folks international, we get uh, we do have an international audience on this podcast. Thank goodness, uh, we got some uh, some folks up in Canada uh, who are listening to this podcast. And, and by the way, for you folks in Canada, there's there's going to be a discussion probably in the not too distant future about. Uh, the United States and Canada during the Revolutionary War, and it's uh, obviously not a pleasant history. The, the United States uh, invaded Canada. There was a lot of that kind of action going on. So we're going to talk about that. You're going to have a. You're going to have a. You're going to have a. A front row seat, so to speak, um, with regards to what was going on with the Founding Fathers back in the day. Uh, and for all the other folks international listening to this podcast, uh, again, thank you so much for listening and giving uh, this your time and attention. Uh, this history is relevant to you as much as it is to us. I've said it a million times probably at this point, but these principles are not owned solely by the uh, the American people in the United States. They're certainly owned by uh, Americans around the world. That is to say, people who have an American mindset. And don't worry, I don't mean a modern American mindset. I mean a classic American mindset. Mindset. There is a big difference, by the way. Maybe I'll do an episode on that. What is the difference between modern America and classic America? Big difference, actually. Big, huge difference. It's like the it's like the difference between a molehill and Mount Everest. But yeah, these these principles that the founding fathers are talking about they belong to the world. They belong to all of the people of the world. So everybody can benefit from this uh this podcast, and uh, hopefully we get a we get an even larger international audience eventually. So let's get into this episode with uh, Mr. Galloway, Mr. Adams. Mr. Adams' notes from the Continental Congress. Let's do that right now. So who was Mr. Galloway, Joseph Galloway? Historically speaking, I mean, the short of it is Mr. Galloway was a loyalist. Oh my gosh, Roman. Yeah, I know. He was a loyalist. He was a um, supporter of the king and the crown and the parliament to a certain extent. 
see, this is the this is the thing about Mr. Galloway. He did not support taxation without representation. Not not according to what I read from John Adams' notes on what Mr. Galloway had said. He wasn't purely die-hard loyalist, do whatever the king says. He believed that there could be some kind of compromise. There had to be some kind of an adjustment. We couldn't just do what Parliament was telling us. We had we had to do something else. We had to have some we had to have our representation in the colonies. That's why he came up with that grand plan uh, for a union between the colonies and Great Britain that we read about back when with uh, Mr. Franklin, when he wrote a letter to Joseph Galloway. And we did go through all that on uh, on previous episodes of the podcast. You'll want to go back and listen to the historic episodes if you haven't listened to those yet. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, if this is the first episode you're downloading, this is going to be one of those episodes. You can listen to this one without having any, any prior context. Technically, you can. And you will get something out of this episode. But it'll be better if you listen to, at the very least, those prior episodes between, I believe it was episodes 75, 76, around that range and up. Uh, but specifically 7576, I think, would be would be good to listen to. It was one of those two. I'd have to look at it. I, as, the, as the episodes go by, sometimes even I forget precisely where this stuff is. But you can, you can tell by the name, probably, on the episode. So, Mr. Galloway was a loyalist, you know. I, and I, it's easy to hold that against him, obviously, in hindsight, because he was 100% wrong about that. And we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna get inside the mind of Mr. Gallo, which is why this is gonna be a good episode. I think we're gonna get inside the mind of a loyalist. What was he thinking, really? It comes out in what he was talking about in the Continental Congress. Mr. Adams took some good notes, I think, and we will begin to understand a little bit more about the loyalist mindset. Now, there's varying degrees of loyalists. There's the diehard loyalists that just do whatever the king says, no matter what. Blah 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 blah. I don't get the impression that that's Mr. Galloway here. Now, I do have one big, huge problem with Mr. Galloway, and that is later later in life, you know, during the Revolution, he cited, he, he threw in with the British military. After the British military had basically conducted an illegal attack upon the American people, the colonists, if you will, which, by the way, I mean, any time a military just outright attacks its own people like this, I mean, that that is... I don't care if it's on the order of a king, a president, a prime minister, or whatever. That that technically constitutes, in my book, high treason. You you do not do that. As soon as as soon as such an order is given under these circumstances. Now, are there circumstances in which you know you have a, an actual legitimate rebellion ongoing, and there's a, and somebody starts shooting, and the government has to respond? Are there circumstances where that's justified? Yeah, sure there are. But this ain't one of them. The people of Lexington and Concord were not shooting at anybody. I want to make that plain and clear, and we're not going to talk about that exactly on this episode. I'm just trying to make a point here about Mr. Galloway and how how unfortunate it was that he threw in with the British military. The people of Lexington and Concord that morning of April 19th, April 18th into the morning of April 19th, 1775, they weren't shooting at anybody, and they had not been shooting at anybody. They were farmers mostly and townsfolk minding their own frickin' business. And when you send out your military, your regular soldiers out to shoot at these kind of people— steal their property, and illegally arrest them, and send them off to some illegal trial, which was the theory. They, the thought was is that they were there to not just seize property. They were there to arrest John Hancock and Samuel Adams illegally. And why do I say illegally? Remember, one of the part of the intolerable acts had to do with the administration of justice. They would remove persons from the locality, this would be Massachusetts, the area of Boston especially, they would remove people from that area that they had arrested and send them off somewhere else for trial. They could send them anywhere, back to Great Britain, they could send them off to Canada, for crying out loud, for trial. In other words, that tri- that jury trial, a trial 
jury of your peers was not really going to be a thing anymore. That's what I would say is it's unconstitutional, according to people like Benjamin Franklin and John Adams at the time. It violated the laws of Massachusetts, the government that had been set up there. So it was illegal. It's not, it's not really me saying that. The Founding Fathers had a problem with it. So when the military is sent out to do such things, to say that that's high treason, I don't think that's a bridge too far. Because it's an illegal order. As soon as any king or despot or tyrant or military governor or military dictator gives that order, they are what I would describe as a domestic enemy. And what is the charge of the military? To pre- I mean, we, we military says it today. To protect this country from all enemies, foreign and domestic. And the British military failed to do that. They violated their honor as soldiers. And these are the people that Joseph Galloway threw in with at the end of the day. That's why I give you that somewhat lengthy explanation about what happened on April 19th of 1775, so you understand who this guy is. Now, that said, at the top, before he did that, before he threw in with people who had committed high treason, in my, in my humble opinion, he was trying to, using his loyalist principles as best as he could, he was trying to bridge the gap, and he was trying to find a way to make this thing work from his perspective, from his loyalist perspective. And I don't have a problem with that necessarily. I don't have a problem with him trying to make it work. His idea may not have been the best idea in the world, but what the hey? He had an idea, he was debating it in open Congress, and he was he was putting forth some something, something to try to make this thing work. To try to build a positive relationship between the colonies and Great Britain. And for that, I suppose we can be uh, we can be appreciative. And I, I appreciate what Mr. Galloway was trying to do. I don't appreciate what he did afterward, but I certainly appreciate what he was trying to do in the Continental Congress. And, you know, that should be the attitude that we have. Even though we disagree with where somebody is coming from politically, we can agree when they do their best to try to make an honest, decent move forward to try to bridge the gap. And we could learn from that. We could learn from, because these are different personalities in this Congress, very different personalities. A Mr. Galloway and like a Samuel Adams, for example, very different. And don't we have different personalities in this country today? And instead of engaging in what I would describe as, you know, partisan insanity, which is what we try to avoid on this podcast, which is why I say this is the uh, nonpartisan discussion about the Founding Fathers, instead of engaging in partisan party politics, can't we just engage in something along these lines, what they were doing in the Congress in 1775, 74 and 75. Sure we can. So let's learn. Let's get an education in how you discuss these kinds of issues in in open Congress by way of the notes of Mr. Adams. Now, these uh, notes are going to come from the uh, the diary of John Adams, notes on the the debates in the Continental Congress. And this is going to be from September the 8th of 1774. And we're not going to start off with Mr. Galloway here. There are a number of other people who spoke that day that Mr. Adams documented, and we're going to start off with a few others, and then we'll get to Mr. Galloway. The first one we're going to do is Mr. Sherman from the notes of John Adams, and I quote, The ministry contend that the colonies are only like corporations in England, and therefore subordinate to the legislature of the kingdom. The colonies, not bound to the king or crown by the act of settlement, but by their consent to it. There is no other legislative over the colonies but their respective assemblies. The colonies adopt the common law, not as the common law, but as the highest reason, end quote. And continuing on from a Mr. Duane, quote, Upon the whole, for grounding our rights on the laws and constitution of the country from whence we sprung, and charters without recurring to the law of nature, because this will be a feeble support 
Charters are compacts between the crown and the people, and I think on this foundation the charter governments stand firm. England is governed by a limited monarchy and a free constitution. Privileges of Englishmen were inherent, their birthright, and inheritance, and cannot be deprived of them without their consent. Objection that all rights of Englishmen will make us independent. I hope a line may be drawn to obviate this objection. James was against parliaments interfering with the colonies. In the reign of Charles II, the sentiments of the crown seemed to have been changed. The Navigation Act was made. Massachusetts denied the authority, but made a law to enforce it in the colony, end quote. Now, this may sound like kind of a random jumble of statements, and it may be. It's the best that John Adams wrote down, obviously. I don't think he was writing everything down precisely, word for word. But he was writing down some of the bigger statements that he heard to convey to anybody reading this and to himself probably later for his own for his own use, his own notes, the, the general the general thoughts that were being conveyed by each of these individuals. So let's start off at the top. I'll go through this so it makes more sense to us. Mr. Sherman makes this statement. This one stands out to me. Quote, there is no other legislative over the colonies but their respective assemblies, end quote. This gets to that debate between Parliament and the colonies, that the colonists are represented in, represented in their respective assemblies in the colonies, not in Parliament. Thus, Parliament does not have much authority at all to bound the colonies, certainly not in all things whatsoever. And that was a sentiment from Mr. Sherman. Now let's, let's listen to Mr. Duane and something that he said— which which I found interesting, that gets to also the heart of this. Quote, James was against parliaments interfering with the colonies. In the reign of Charles II, the sentiments of the crown seemed to have been changed. The Navigation Act was made. Massachusetts denied the authority, but made a law to enforce it in the colony, end quote. So who's James? That's King James. And then Charles II comes along and starts changing things. So, so he's basically saying that James was against parliaments interfering in the colonies. And probably for good reason. The colonies had their charters. They were to have their respective assemblies in the colonies. They're too far away to be governed by England. Directly. On every single issue. Whatsoever. These things had to be handled locally. Locally. Keep that in mind. What do we keep talking about on this podcast? The, the Founding Fathers wanted to keep the government as close to the people as possible. The closer the government to the people, the more authority the government would have. Insofar as the government has any authority at all. And remember, the closest thing to the individual people is the individual people themselves. Thus, freedom and liberty resides with the people. That's why we have inalienable rights. Government, just because a government is close to the, closest to the people doesn't mean it has absolute authority. It only means that it has the, the highest authority so far as the government can have. There's a limitation on what authority a government can have, period. And much of the authority of living daily life, of conducting ourselves as citizens, resides solely with the people themselves, not with any government. Keep that in mind. But generally speaking, the closer to the people, the government, the more authority that it would have insofar as the government has any authority at all. And it's interesting, this second part, quote, The Navigation Act was made. Massachusetts denied the authority, but made a law to enforce it in the colony, end quote. The Navigation Act was basically, it regulated trade amongst other things, but what he's talking about here is... A Navigation Act was made by Parliament. Massachusetts denied that they had any authority to do it, and they passed their own law to enforce it. They basically said, that, that's Massachusetts saying, you don't have the authority to do this, but we agree to it, so we are going to vote to enforce it. We are going to give it our assent, our approval, because such an act requires the assent of the respective assemblies of the colonies. Parliament cannot do this. 
And that's Massachusetts saying you cannot do this. Interesting. So that's the point he's trying to make. Now let's go back and listen to this other thing he had to say here. Quote, England is governed by a limited monarchy and a free constitution. Privileges of Englishmen were inherent, their birthright and inheritance, and cannot be deprived of them without their consent. End quote. We're going to talk a lot about this today because this becomes a real thing. A real, real topic of discussion. England is governed by a limited monarchy and a free constitution, so he says. That seems to be the general sentiment to the people in the Congress. And he says the privileges of Englishmen are inherent and their birthright and inheritance cannot be deprived of them without their consent. That how do they, and how is that, how does their consent happen? In their respective assemblies in the colonies. Not in Parliament. Parliament does not have the consent of the people in the colonies. There's no representation there. So you cannot take these things away from them without the approval of their respective assemblies in the colonies. That's what the man is saying. So consent is obtained through the representation in the colonies. Now, at the time, uh, you know, in, I'll say it like this, you know, the not, not speaking strictly and exclusively about the colonies at this time, but of, of, you know, representation generally speaking. You can have representation in an elected body, be it a Congress, a Parliament, or whatever, what have you, a legislature. But just because... You know, people are voting and electing these people does not necessarily mean that they have representation. You know, these things these things can get a little bit murky. And what do I mean by that? If an elected body, an assembly, a legislature, a parliament, a congress is corrupted by some particular kind of influence, and there are many, many opportunities for that, and, uh, and I'm, I'll, I've talked a little bit about that thus far in this uh, this particular podcast in episodes previous, and I'll probably talk about it again in episodes yet to come. But representation can be corrupted, and if it is corrupted, it's not really representation anymore. And thus, any vote by that representative body does not constitute consent of the people. Just a thought. Now, that gets controversial to talk about, because how do you discern whether or not a body is corrupt or not corrupt? It's actually pretty doggone easy. And I'll, I'll get into the details of that, I think, in another episode of the podcast later on down the road. But you need to think about that in the back of your mind. Just because an elected body votes for something does not mean that they represent the people, does not mean that that is the people's consent, because there's a lot of trickery that goes on behind the scenes. There's a lot of gamesmanship. And if an elected body is corrupted in such a way, that basically leaves the people unrepresented. Something to think about. And there's going to be a lot of people who disagree with me on that. That's perfectly fine. You know, but I'll give you a quote from John Adams that'll back me up on this uh, to some degree. And, and I'll add this and some other things later on down the road as we talk about this at some length. This does not come from these notes that I'm reading today. This comes from some of John Adams' other writings, and it goes a little something like this. Quote, corruption in elections is the great enemy of freedom, end quote. Oh my gosh, Roman, what are you talking about? Well, you know what? I, mostly, you know, there's a lot of parts to this, but money is one of them. I've talked about that just briefly before. You know, when you're spending a billion dollars on on, a, on like a political campaign, I'd say we have ourselves a bit of a problem here. Who's paying for it? Where's the money coming from? Do you ever wonder that? Where's the money coming from? And who's walking through the halls of Congress every day? Literally, almost every day. That Congress is in session. Who's walking through the halls of Congress with checkbooks attached to really large bank accounts and writing checks? Why are, Why do these politicians spend so much of their time cashing checks and buying mansions? Why do some of them live in $10 million properties? I'm not making that up. I think maybe we have a problem here. Just a thought. And who are they really representing when they get elected into Congress? Are they, are they representing the people who voted for them, or are they representing the people who bought them? Because more than likely, you did not buy these politicians, but somebody else did. Just a thought. Now, you can, you can, now, we can bury our head in the sands of society, and we can just ignore that problem, or we can face it head on. Uh, time will tell. Time will tell, sooner or later. 
But you have to keep that in the back of your mind. These things are always multidimensional. It's not a one-dimensional world that we live in. So when people describe these things like representation, the consent of the governed, these respective assemblies and these local governments, etc., you have to remember that there's always another level to this. Makes things much more complicated. Let us continue on with uh, John Adams' notes. And we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna read just one line here from a Mr. Lee, and it goes a little something like this, quote, Life and liberty, which is necessary for the security of life, cannot be given up when we enter into society, end quote. Life and liberty. Necessary for the security of life. We can't give it up when we enter society. Sounds a little familiar to you, doesn't it? I believe a quote most commonly attributed to Benjamin Franklin, those who trade liberty for security deserve neither. It's a very similar mindset, and I'm paraphrasing slightly on that quote, by the way. Yeah, you know, life and liberty. It's really one of the primary purposes of this Congress is to protect life and liberty. I wish I could say the same thing for Congress today, which is clearly not the case, by the way. Like, it goes, goes back to what I was saying at the beginning of the podcast, there being a big difference between modern America and classic America. Big difference. So let's get into Mr. Galloway and what he has to say about all this. And again, Mr. Galloway is trying, is talking in part about his plan for union between the colonies and Great Britain, this uh, American legislature that we had described on previous episodes. So Mr. Galloway, and I quote, I never could find the rights of Americans in the distinctions between taxation and legislation, nor in the distinction between laws for revenue and for the regulation of trade. I have looked for our rights in the laws of nature, but could not find them in a state of nature, but always in a state of political society. I have looked for them in the constitution of the English government and there found them. We may draw them from this source securely. Power results from the real property of the society. The states of Greece, Macedon, Rome were founded on this plan. None but landholders could vote in the comitia or stand for offices. English constitution founded on the same principle. Among the Saxons and landholders were obliged to attend and shared among them the power. In the Norman period, the same. When the landholders could not all attend... The representation of the freeholders came in. Before the reign of Henry, an attempt was made to give the tenants in Capite a right to vote. Magna Carta, archbishops, bishops, abbots, earls, and barons, and tenants in Capite held all the lands in England. It is of the essence of the English constitution that no law shall be binding, but such are made by the consent of the proprietors in England. How then did it stand with our ancestors when they came over here? They could not be bound by any laws made by the British Parliament, excepting those made before. I never could see any reason to allow that we are bound by any law made since, nor could I ever make any distinction between the sorts of laws. I have ever thought we might reduce our rights to one, an exemption from all laws made by British Parliament made since the immigration of our ancestors. It follows, therefore, that all the acts of Parliament made since are violations of our rights. These claims are all defensible upon the principles even of our enemies, Lord North himself, when he shall inform himself of the true principles of the Constitution. I am well aware that my arguments tend to an independency of the colonies and militate against the maxim that there must be some absolute power to draw together all the wills and strength of the empire, end quote. Very interesting. There's actually quite a bit to take apart in this uh in this really relatively short uh, series of statements by Mr. Galloway. But I'll start, you know, up at the top here and read this section again so we can pick it apart and see where we're going with this. Quote, I never could find the rights of Americans and the distinctions between taxation and legislation, nor in the distinction between the laws for revenue 
and for the regulation of trade. I have looked for our rights in the laws of nature, but could not find them in a state of nature, but always in a state of political society. I have looked for them in the constitution of the English government, and there found them. We may draw them from this source securely, end quote. So he's there's two parts to this. And he, he gets back to the other one later on, so I think I'll save the discussion about that one for for later, and I'll, I'll join those two statements together. But let's, so I'll focus on this nature versus constitution argument here. He says he's looked in nature for our, our rights, and he can't find them there, but he can find them securely, basically securely, within the political society, within the constitution of the English government. Interesting. Now, what's the problem with this? There is a problem with this statement. His logic, basically. There's a problem with his logic here. What is it? I mean, what happens when you deny the existence, or at the very least in his statement, deny finding any any existence of any rights in, in, in nature, but you can find them in political society? problem I have with that, and the problem the Founding Fathers had with that, and I'll get to that here in a second, is that if your rights only exist in political society, they can be given by the political society, and they can be taken away. It's kind of like an old phrase, what the Lord giveth, the Lord can taketh away. And so it goes, what the, what, what the government can give, the government can take away. This is why governments love this stuff. Governments love it when people say that our rights come strictly from the political society. Governments love that. They love it when people say that because that gives them total and absolute authority and power to give the rights to the people and to take every single one of them away from the people. Because if our rights as human beings, either as human beings from wherever or as natural-born Englishmen, as the Founding Fathers might say, like this statement that we read just a few minutes ago, from Mr. Duane, quote, "...privileges of Englishmen were inherent, their birthright and inheritance, and cannot be deprived of them without their consent." End quote. If those rights are only found in the political society, then that political society can just take them away at the drop of a hat. And what is this perspective? Now that we know that Mr. Galloway is a loyalist, as I said earlier, let me read something to you that we read on episode 60. Episode 60, if you want to go back and listen to it, but I'm going to read it to you again. Quote, they have extorted many thousands pounds from America unconstitutionally under color of acts of parliament and with an armed force. Of this money, they ought to make restitution. They might first have taken out payment for the tea and returned the rest. But you who are thorough courtier, see everything with government eyes. End quote. Government eyes, ladies and gentlemen. These people like Mr. Galloway, because as we know again, he was a loyalist, these people who see our rights in the political society, and only there, they cannot find them in nature, as natural law. They see everything with government eyes. And that is a very dangerous, dangerous thing. It is a dangerous perspective. And you have to understand politicians oftentimes, in the modern day, see things exactly the same way. They see everything through political government eyes. They don't see they don't see our rights carved out in nature. They don't see it because they don't give a crap. They want to be able to give and they want to be able to take away. They want to basically play God. And doesn't that sound so accurate when you really think about it? Don't these people talk and act like they want to play God? 
I mean, if you can, if you can take the blinders off, the political party blinders, if you can take those off for five minutes, and I know most of you can on this podcast, because the kind of people who listen to this material are the kind of people who can do that. Now, the TLDR crowd is going to have a heck of a lot more difficult time doing that, but if anybody from the TLDR crowd is, has actually managed to stay on this podcast for this long, I would encourage you to do the same. Take the political party blinders off and really listen to these people with a logical ear. Not with an emotional ear, not with an ideological ear, but with a logical, analytical ear. And what you will hear, what you will hear, is oftentimes these people thinking they can play God. As if nothing bad has ever happened in the history of the world from people trying to play God. But that's what we're listening to from Mr. Galloway. Government eyes. Sees everything through government eyes. And you can hear it in what he's talking about. Now, giving the man the benefit of the doubt, he may be trying, you could say that maybe he's trying to say, it's too ambiguous an argument to argue that we have natural rights. It's too ambiguous. Nobody's going to agree with us. The parliament's not going to agree with us. The king's not going to agree with us. So what we have to say is we have to say that it's in political society, it's in our constitution. That they cannot deny. They cannot deny that our constitutions, our colonial charters going all the way back, gave us these rights and they cannot be taken away. You could say he's maybe making that argument. Give him the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he's not seeing everything through government eyes as much as he's trying to He's trying to frame the argument in such a way that it can't be denied. Okay, but here's the problem with that. Once you go down that road, you can't go back. Once you tell the government, yes, we don't have any natural rights, our rights are solely from the political society, the government is going to beat you over the head with that until the day you die. And you may very well die at the hands of your own government. Talk to people in China about that. They'll tell you all about it if they're being honest and if they actually remember what happened. But what about this argument between natural laws versus the laws of political society? This issue was settled by the Founding Fathers. This isn't me settling it. This is the Founding Fathers settling it. Let me read it to you right now, loud and proud. Quote, When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. That might sound familiar to you. That was the uh, Declaration of Independence, ladies and gentlemen. Those are beautiful words. Every time I read those, I, I have this really great feeling in my spirit. But that settled the debate right there. This talk of whether our rights are found solely in the political society and in the, in the British Constitution as natural-born Englishmen, or if they are in fact found in the laws of nature and of nature's God. And the Founding Fathers made it plain. We are endowed by our Creator with unalienable rights. Unalienable. You cannot take these away. Neither the British government nor any government in the world can take these rights away. That's why I say that these rights belong to everybody. I don't care where you live. I don't care if you live in America or not, or if you've ever set foot in this country or not. I don't give a crap. These are your rights. This is talking about you. Yes, you. You folks in Germany, this is you. In France, this is you. Canada, this is you. Myanmar, this is you. Japan, this is you. China, this is you. Taiwan, this is you. You are, quote, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. That's you. 
So if your government does not recognize this, I don't care. You have these rights. It doesn't matter. The Founding Fathers were plain about that. Okay, so Mr. Galloway lost the argument. And rightfully so. He was wrong. He was dead wrong. Because he was looking at everything through government eyes, as we'd, as Benjamin Franklin described in that letter that I read you from episode 60. But like I said, maybe we give him the benefit of the doubt and we say that he's trying to just make it plain. So we don't go, so the, the king can't say, well, I don't see these rights in nature. Well, he's saying, well, by gosh, you can see them in the British Constitution. They're right there. King, Parliament, look at them, look for them there. And I, you know what? I acknowledge that. I acknowledge that he's trying to, trying to make that point. And I, I don't, I don't really mind that. He's trying to make that point, but you don't. You should. He should never deny that these rights exist in nature. If he wants to make, if he wants to make the added point that you can find them in the British Constitution, I'm fine with that. But the reason why this is so dreadfully important, as I said before, I want to drive this point home because this is one of the most important things that you will ever talk about as it pertains to the Founding Fathers, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. This is one of the most important things that we will ever talk about right here. This concept, unalienable rights. If you don't recognize that, if you only recognize your rights as existing in whatever government document you can point to, the government can take them away. Those rights are not worth the paper that they're printed on. We've talked about, I talked, uh, I think it was, it was a number of episodes ago, I talked very briefly about the Soviet Constitution. There are parts of that thing that sound just lovely on the surface. But when you really get down to it, that you know, whatever, whatever good thing you might spot in that Constitution, it wasn't worth the paper it was printed on. It was all crap. Because they didn't recognize any unalienable rights. That's why they sent so many people to the gulag. A man has rights. A woman has rights. Simply because they exist. And rightfully so. And if you disagree with that, then you acknowledge. I want to I make this point very clear. If you disagree with that, then you acknowledge that a country can do the Holocaust. And a government can murder, torture, and destroy its population and anybody else that it wants to. Because people have because you're saying that people have no natural rights. They have no natural protections against that government. That government can pass any law, take away any right, and do anything it darn well pleases to a population of people. Simple as that. And there are some people out there that have that philosophy. I pray that nobody who listening to this podcast has that philosophy. Because anybody who has that philosophy would have been very welcome in Germany in the 1930s. They would have said to you, welcome, brother. And believe it or not, most of the Founding Fathers saw that coming. So they knew they have to say, they have to acknowledge the truth that these rights are found in nature. These are natural rights that we have simply because we are breathing and we are human beings. So when it says that, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. They mean business, the Founding Fathers. They do. They're natural rights. In other words, these rights existed before government was a thing. These rights go back before government. People forget that sometimes. You know, governments haven't always been around, especially the United States government and the British government. These things are relatively new on the scene. And to say that these governments can usurp these natural rights and take them away is insanity. Because people have existed long before government. And these rights existed long before government. And these new governments have absolutely no right to take them away. None. But boy, don't they try. And that tells you absolutely every single thing you need to know about government, especially the politicians that run it. The politicians that run the governments, these are most of the time some pretty nefarious characters. Just FYI. Now, Mr. Galloway touches on another interesting subject. This is fascinating. 
And you you, be, you open up a can of worms anytime you read anything from the Founding Fathers at any length. I mean, sometimes there's just a lot to pick apart in absolutely everything they said that was common sense at the time, but has just been lost. Now, how does that happen? Well, riddle me this. How is it possible that something that's just common sense in 1774 and 75 amongst a great swath of the population is completely gone and completely lost 250 years later? And the answer to the question is the same answer as always. People don't study history. You know, I'm watching this uh, documentary the other day, and you have this historian who's, wa who's walking through a, a town that was impacted by World War II. And he's trying to find the answer to a question amongst the population about what happened there 70, 80 years ago. And he can't find anybody who knows the answer. And this is a question that almost everybody in the town, or at least a certain group of people in the town, should know the answer to, but they don't. He has to go to a very elderly individual. He finally tracks down a very elderly individual who was alive at the time, who remembers a little bit about it. And that's the person he has to talk to. That is a sad commentary on society. And that's what happens when you don't teach history to your children and your grandchildren. For Pete's sake, people, please do more of that, especially if you got grandkids. I mean, for, I mean, grandparents out there, I don't know why they don't do more of this. I mean, you got this captive audience. You know, your kids drop off the grandkids one weekend or maybe for a month or something like that. I used to spend whole months at a time with my grandparents when I was a kid. You got this captive audience. Talk about some history. Talk about the history that you've seen. Talk about what was going on back in the day and what your grandparents talked about history-wise, if they talked about anything. Or if they didn't, then, you know, come up with something they would have experienced when they were alive, and talk about it, and pass that history down, so that, you know, we don't have a, a country of, you know, wandering morons who don't know what the heck happened 70, 80 years ago, and you got this historian wandering around trying to find somebody who can answer the question, and nobody can. Because, again, you got these blithering idiots out there who haven't studied any history. And I, I think I made my point clear on the previous episode that if you want to know why history is important and why you should read it, you know, there's 100,000 people, more than 100,000 Americans anyway, dead in World War I that have the answer to that question. Especially those people who died on the last day of the war. That's why history is important. People die. It's not convenient to acknowledge that, but it's the truth. But let's continue on with Mr. Galloway here. Quote, Power results from the real property of the society. The states of Greece, Macedon, Rome were founded on this plan. None but landholders could vote in the comitia or stand for offices. English constitution founded on the same principle. Among the Saxons, the landholders were obliged to attend and shared among them the power. In the Norman period, the same. When the landholders could not all attend, the representation of the freeholders came in. Before the reign of Henry, a, an attempt was made to give the tenants in Capite a right to vote. Magna Carta, archbishops, bishops, abbots, earls, and barons, and tenants in Capite held all the lands in England. End quote. Interesting. Now, somebody could very easily just read over this section and just skip right over it and not say a word about it. But this is very fascinating, ladies and gentlemen. Because this gets back to an episode sometime back when I was talking about voting. Why, Roman, whatever do you mean? Quote, The states of Greece, Macedon, Rome were founded on this plan. None but landholders could vote in the comitia or stand for offices, end quote. This ties in with what I was talking about when it came to voting. Remember that debate sometime back where I was talking about the voting age? It was reduced in large measure, commonly, you know, a lot of times you'd see voting age 21, it was reduced by constitutional amendment to 18. That's why we have this problem in this country. Yes, I said it. This problem in this country where 18, 19, and 20-year-olds can vote. And yes, I do view that to be a problem. If you want to know why, go back and listen to those episodes. They're very good episodes, very good debate on that particular topic. 
because you're not going to hear anybody else in this country debate that today, except for me and maybe three other people, and good luck finding the other three. You know, one of them probably died yesterday, and the other two are probably living in a cave somewhere, and you'll never find them. I say jokingly. Uh, and I say I say that to mean you're, you're just not going to find hardly anybody else talking about this. You're just not. And that's, again, the value of this podcast. If you ever wanted to know the value of it, here we go again. But this ties in very well with that episode. Actually, it was multiple episodes. I couldn't I couldn't get it all out in one episode. I had to keep going. Now, before I get too deep into this, you have this, this one part here that's very interesting. Quote, An attempt was made to give the tenants in Capite a right to vote. End quote. Tenants in Capite, or Capite, however you want to pronounce that. What is that? What in the world is that? I had to look it up. It's not a, not a term in common usage anymore. And what I understand it to be is a kind of landholder that does not have full legal ownership of the land. Uh, the land would typically be owned by a lord over and above them or the king himself. It's a, it really harkens from that feudal system in a, in a sense. Now, here's the thing about that, and I wanted to make a point about this, because I, I, I think I've mentioned this a few times in passing on this on this podcast. Is there such a thing as an American citizen owning land in this country today? Because we talk about it all the time. We talk, and I, I want to address this. People are going to wonder, Roman, why are you addressing this for Pete's sake? What is this, the real estate podcast? Are you trying to become a real estate agent now? What, what are you talking about? I'm telling you, this all ties into the Founding Fathers. And this is very important because nobody else, well, that's not true. There are actually a few people in the last five to ten years roughly talking about this, but few and far between. This is still very verboten to talk about. I don't know why, but it is. And for those of you young people out there that are listening to this podcast, people are going to lie to you or they're going to misstate the reality of the situation, I guess I should say, because some people just aren't educated about this. They don't know. And, and we, we, they've been lied to. Your parents have been lied to. Your grandparents were lied to. We were all lied to. So I have to set the record straight. Does anybody in this country own land or property? Do you own a house? Is there such a thing as, quote unquote, homeownership in this country? And the answer to the question is no, there is not. It doesn't exist. Oh my gosh, Roman, how dare you? How dare you lie to the people like that and say that there's no such thing as homeownership? Plenty of people own their own home. No, they don't. How do I, now, how do I come to that conclusion? Well, let's say you have a house and you don't have a mortgage on it. You've paid the mortgage off, or maybe you were lucky. You paid cash for a house. You never had a mortgage. You're one of those fortunate individuals. Thank goodness. Or maybe you inherited a house. Fantastic. I'm happy for you. Seriously. And you think you own that. Well, riddle me this. What happens if you don't pay those property taxes for a few years? Usually in, in a lot of municipalities, it's five years, by the way, roughly. Eh, it can vary, five, six, you know, four, five, six, somewhere around there, but usually about five years. You don't pay your property taxes. What are they going to do? They're going to come take your house away from you is what they're going to do. That's the answer to the question. They're going to come take that house away. Why? Because it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to them. And who is them? The government. You pay rent on that house to the government. They're called property taxes. It's one of those Shakespearean-type questions, you know, would a rose by any other name smell sweet? Well, you know, would... um. Would, would, would rent by any other name mean something different? Property taxes is really just a form of rent. Believe it or not, in the United States today, we still live in a, in a very kind of feudal system as far as land holding goes. This goes all the way back centuries, millennia, where people did not own land, they could not own land. The king owned it, and people just kind of occupied it. They paid some tribute to the king to be able to manage it, whatever, what have you. It's the same thing we have today. Now, that's a sad Sad commentary on the world, especially in the United States of America. You would think if any country in the world you could live in, where you could actually own your own property, you could actually own your land, it would be the United States of America, but you can't. You will always have to pay rent to the government, and the government is the one that really owns the property. You're just kind of there. And if you've got a problem with that, then you're in good company because I got a problem with that too. And if you want to change that, 
You can try, but good luck. I've actually talked to state representatives about that before. I'm telling you, you talk to a state representative about this, they will look at you like you are an alien from Mars, telling them that the Martian invasion is coming tomorrow. Most of them do not get this principle at all. They don't, under they don't understand why this is a problem. And more specifically, they don't understand how to solve it either. You know, so in a nutshell, we're much more like Tenets and Capite, as described in this document by Mr. Galloway and Mr. Adams, who was taking the notes. We're much more similar to that than we are anything resembling what I would call a property owner, because we're not property owners at all. And the, the problem with fixing that, and I would encourage you to try to fix it, by the way. You know, if you if you want to try, contact your state house representatives, contact your uh, state senators, whoever, whatever, and talk to them about it. But again, like I said, they're going to look at you like an alien, and more than likely, they're going to tell you to go pound sand. They're going to tell you to go to Hades, because they've got their hands so deep into that cookie jar, you couldn't pull it out with a tractor. Not to mention, a lot of people seem to want to dump buckets and buckets of money into tax-funded boondoggles, so they, they can't live without the revenue that they get on your on your property. They couldn't possibly, and they couldn't find another way to get it either. Now, what's a boondoggle? Some people, somebody might ask, well, what do you mean by a tax-funded boondoggle? What's that? Well, I actually, you know, I looked up the definition of boondoggle some, some time back, and I pulled it for this episode in case somebody was curious what, a boon, what I mean by a boondoggle. And this is how Webster defines it. Quote, a wasteful or impractical project or activity often involving graft. End quote. What is graft? Quote, the acquisition of gain such as money, in dishonest or questionable ways, end quote. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, now you know what I'm talking about. Somebody out there is going to be like, oh, yeah, I you're right, it is tax-funded boondoggles. Yep, exactly. It's a terrible system we have in this country as far as property ownership goes. And I'm not saying there's probably some middle ground to be had there, because I know I've listened to the arguments from these people. They're like, well, you can't raise revenue if you don't have proper, if you don't have property taxes because it's the only thing that people can't move. They can't move their house, so we tax it. Like, okay. But there's probably another way to go about doing that. Like, maybe you tax other property, but you don't tax the principal residence or something like that. I mean, I, I don't know. But there's there's probably some way to solve it. They just don't want to. They don't care. There, that's that's my civics lesson for the day, if you're if you're curious. So every once in a while, a civics lesson comes up on this uh, on this podcast because one of the Founding Fathers opens the door, and I walk through it. And Mr. Galloway opened the door for me, and I walked right through that thing. I never miss an opportunity to walk right through that door. So no extra charge for that. That was just a... That civics lesson is on me. I, I just can't help but to go on a rant about this stuff because it bothers me. You know, these, these, these things that we've just accepted. You'd be surprised the number of things that we just kind of accept in society that make no freaking sense whatsoever. Like in the United States, anyway. I mean, it makes sense in China. Like in China, as best as I understand it, in China, there's also, by the way, no such thing as property ownership. But what they, what they have in there is like something like a 99-year lease. Like when you quote-unquote buy a piece of property in China, the way I've always understood it, it's like a 99-year lease. The government clearly owns the property, and there's all kinds of restrictions and rules and blah, 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 blah. In that case, it's very plain and apparent that they own the property, the government, that is. In the United States, it's this weird kind of lie that we all tell ourselves, and the government lies to us as well. And people in the government talk about property ownership, especially politicians, and quote-unquote owning your own house, and it's all just a lie. And at some point when I was younger, I just got sick and tired of it, got sick and tired of being lied to. And I think that's what has to happen a lot of times for these things to change, is you just have to just get sick and tired of being lied to. Because it's clearly a lie. I mean, I can demonstrate that proof positive on paper, but, you know, you'd be surprised how many people will deny it and say, Oh, yeah, Roman, you're crazy. You don't know what you're talking about. There is such a thing as property ownership, blah, blah, blah. No, there's not. I mean, I love that that's some people's opinion and everything, but it's just flatly incorrect. But getting to the substance of this, he's talking about land ownership being tied, or land, again, occupancy, being tied to voting and representation. 
very interesting because we have lost concept of this entirely in the United States today. Quote, power results from the real property of the society, end quote. And for those younger folks out there who may not understand the terminology, real, real property means real estate. It means like own, having a house, having land, so on and so forth. That's what real property means. And when he mentions this, uh, this particular section right here, quote, It is the essence of the English Constitution that no law shall be binding, but such as are made by the consent of the proprietors in England, end quote. A proprietor, what he means by proprietor in this context is some kind of an owner. Again, we've kind of talked about ownership being a farcical enterprise, more or less, in American and British society, but that you, you get the idea. But it means some kind of a quote-unquote owner, um, owner-operator, property, property owner, property occupant, whatever, what have you. You have to you have to have some stake in property. You have to have some title to it. Even if even if, even if again the title is again a farcical one, you don't really own it. The king or the government owns it. You get the idea. Now, so so he goes through this list of countries and societies throughout time where land holding, land owning, and or land holding would probably be a better way to put it. Land holding because you can be all. That's basically again in the United States what we are. We're not landowners. We're land holders. We simply hold some title to the property. Again, if you're lucky enough to actually have a piece of property that you have that you that you quote unquote own or occupy, whatever. But for those of you that do. We hold a kind of title to the property, but we never really own it, so we're landholders. But what he's saying is that landholders historically have been the ones who have been only the ones who have been able to vote or hold office. Now, do we have that system in the United States today? Absolutely not. Any random person can vote all the way down to the the young age of 18, which, again, I would contest as a problem. And whether you, whether you, have, whether you occupy or whether you're a landholder or not, doesn't matter. You can vote. Now, is this a good idea? And why am I asking this question? Because society's past have told us that this is not a good idea. I'm dead serious. That's basically what he's saying. Because if they if they thought it was a good idea, what we do today in the United States, if they thought it was a good idea, then they would have done it. But they didn't. And some people might say, well, that was because they were corrupt. It was uh, oppressive. It was some kind of uh, tyranny, blah, 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 blah. It's not, that's, by the way, that's not necessarily true. In some cases, yes. In some cases, no. It kind of goes, it ebbs and it flows and it goes back and forth. So anytime you see something like that happening throughout history and you see a stark contrast to the way we handle things today, you have to ask yourself, are we doing the right thing or were they doing the right thing? Any intellectual person should ask that question. Don't just automatically dismiss it. This is what I would encourage you, especially you young folks out there who have not been told this before. Do not just automatically dismiss this just because we don't do it in the United States today. Don't think that what we're doing is better. It may be. You may be of the opinion that it's better for people to vote with, without having to own land and all the rest of it. That's perfectly fine. Don't worry about it. We have a better system in the United States. If that's your opinion, I'm fine with that. But think about it first. Don't just automatically have that opinion. Think real long and hard about this because this is dead serious. This is very, very important stuff that we're talking about here. This is not so simple as it may sound. This is not a simple policy change. And I will read to you the societies and civilizations again that disagree with the United States of America today. Quote, The states of Greece, Macedon, Rome, were founded on this plan. None but landholders could vote in the commissia or stand for offices. English constitution founded on the same principle. Among the Saxons, the landholders were obliged to attend and shared among them the power. In the Norman period, the same. End quote. That's a lot of people over a long period of time. Thousands of years, basically, of having the same policy. And then come along the United States of America, we change it. Why? Why did we do that? And was it better to do it this way before? 
Because what happened, here's, here's the thing about this. I have no idea why it is we abandoned this policy so eagerly. Oh my gosh, Roman, are you trying to say that you, you believe that only landholders should be able to vote and blah, 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 blah? Well, yes and no. I think we should think about it. Now, well, my, oh my gosh, Roman, are you suggesting that? Yeah, I know. These, uh, these, these ideas are very controversial. Now, why do I say that? Is it because I'm some elitist rich landholder and I'm perfect? No, not really. I am, I am by no means a rich landholder, never have been. Historically, I've spent the, the vast majority of my life not even coming remotely close to being able to buy a piece of property. And not without, not without doing it in a very foolish fashion, anyway. Uh, which I refuse to do. But here's why people, you know, people who do think that you should have to own land to be able to vote and to hold office, the reason why they say that, because you got to understand the fundamental reason why, they believe that you should have some discernible stake in the system. You should have something to risk. Because if you have nothing to risk in this system, then you could vote for the stupidest crap on the planet that affects everybody else except you. Everybody who has any kind of property or any kind of stake in the system. You could have an army of people out there with no stake in the system. They don't have any land. They don't have anything. All of them voting to take away the property of the people who worked really hard for it. Now, some people don't work really hard. I, I know there's going to be an argument out there. Well, some people don't work hard for their property, Roman. I know there's people out there who don't work hard at all for, the, for what they got. I know that, but that's a minority of people. Most of the people who have something in this country, they worked really hard for it. And their parents worked really hard. And their grandparents worked really hard. I mean, you got situations in this country where people came to this country with nothing, and they worked really, really hard, and all they could ever afford was a small apartment. But they were able to give their children a little bit of a leg up because they came here to the United States, for one, and because maybe they saved something. They worked really, really hard, and they saved. And maybe their children were able to live in a, a little bit of a, maybe not an apartment, maybe they lived in a rental house their whole lives. They never were able to buy anything, but they lived in a rental house or something like that. A little bit of a nicer place. And maybe they were able to save up a little bit of money, and that third generation was finally able to buy a piece of property. This is a generational struggle for some people, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. It's called working hard. But those people now have a stake in the system. And what if all those other people who don't have a stake, they vote to take that property away from that person? Because they don't have, because that other, that other group doesn't have a stake in the system. So they don't care. They don't care if the government takes all their stuff away. Because they didn't have to work for it. That is to say, the people who don't have anything, they didn't have to work for all that stuff that those other people worked so hard for. This is the problem. And I'm not just making this up. John Adams talked about this. He made a big deal about this. Oh my gosh, Roman, are you saying that this is John Adams' philosophy? Well, I don't know. Let me see. I read this to you on this, uh, on this podcast a long, long time ago. This comes from Mr. Adams, and I quote, But it must be remembered that the rich are people as well as the poor, that they have rights as well as others, that they have as clear and as sacred a right to their large property as others have to theirs which is smaller, that oppression to them is as possible and as wicked as to the others, that stealing, robbing, cheating are the same crimes and sins whether committed against them or others. The rich, therefore, ought to have an effectual barrier in the Constitution against being robbed, plundered, and murdered, as well as the poor. And this can never be without an independent Senate. The poor should have a bulwark against the same dangers and oppressions, end quote. Now, this barrier that John Adams was talking about in the United States of America has been partially dismantled. Oh my gosh, Roman, are you talking about... Yeah, I know. I, yes, I am talking about that. We're going to talk about that much later on down the road. It's going to come up. 
And if you want to hear about that sooner, it has to do with our discussion on the Constitution. If anybody wants to hear about that stuff sooner rather than later, I put it to basically you folks who listen to this podcast and participate on the study group to make the decision. Should I go through the converse, the Constitution, the long-form discussion of the Constitution, piece by piece, line by line, sooner or later? Do you want to hear that soon, or do you want to wait the three years probably it's going to take for us to actually get there? Let me know. Leave a review on the podcast on Apple Podcasts, and I will cover it sooner or later, depending on how you feel about that. Thus far, I have not gotten an opinion in the reviews about it. But this is clear what John Adams says, quote, The rich, therefore, ought to have an effectual barrier in the Constitution against being robbed, plundered, and murdered, as well as the poor, end quote. Well, one way they have done this historically in societies is make it so that only landholders can vote, so that the people who don't have land cannot come in and vote to take the property away from the people who have it. Now, somebody might ask the question, Roman, do you believe in the United States today that only landholders should be able to vote. I would say, not necessarily. I, I, I very much lean in that direction, but not necessarily, and there's a reason why. There are two kinds of people in this country that want to try to take everything that, that everybody else has. There is a certain group of people at the bottom end of the spectrum. That is to say, people who don't have very much. Not all of them. Be very, I, I understand what I'm saying here. A, a certain portion of that population, not all of them, they want, very much want, to take everything away from everybody else. Everything that you have, they want to take it away. How do I know that? Because I listen to what they say. I simply listen to them, and I take them seriously. That's it. Again, not all of them, just some of them. It's probably not even a majority, but it's, it's a sizable number. There is also a certain portion of the people at the very, very top, at the very, very top, these would be your so-called, these people call themselves, quote-unquote, the elites. I've talked about them before. I simply call them the corrupt. There's a certain group of those folks that want to take away absolutely everything that you have. Now, how do I know that? Because I listen to them, and I take them seriously when they speak. I don't just ignore them. I don't bury my head in the sand. I don't put my hands over my ears and go, la, 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 I'm not hearing this. I don't do that. I know a lot of people in the United States do, but I don't. Why? Because I'm not stupid. That's why. So I know who those people are on both ends of the spectrum. And it's the people in the middle that constantly have to fight those people off. We constantly have to fight those people off. And we don't get a lot of help doing it either. And all we're trying to hold on to is just that little bit that we have. That little bit. That meager existence that we're trying to eke out for ourselves. We're just trying to hold on to it. And not have it robbed from underneath of us. Now, why is it that I that I stop short of saying that only landholders should be able to vote? I believe that there should be some system for addressing this and it gets very complicated but why do i why do i why do i why am i attracted to this concept and why am i not i'll start with why i'm not like why do i stop short of saying that yes this is absolutely the system that we have because i have no doubt in my mind that there would be a concerted effort made to try to deny access to property ownership property holding i should say again because nobody owns property there would be a concerted effort made by some people to preclude many people from being able to hold property if that was the case. They would basically deny people the right to vote. It's already difficult enough in this country to be able to have any kind of property. It is incredibly difficult in this country today to be able to buy a piece of property. If you're working your way up from the bottom. If you start with nothing. Now, for those people out there who've got a leg up from their parents or their grandparents or something like that, fantastic. Congratulations. But you got to understand, most people, well, I don't know about most, but many people don't have that. And they got to start from the bottom. Very difficult to actually get into a piece of property, especially by yourself. 
I mean, if you're married, you got two incomes, maybe it's a little bit easier. It depends on your income. It varies. It's all over the place. But it's very, very difficult. And I have no doubt in my mind that some people would make it even more difficult if this was tied to voting. That's why I stopped short of saying that this is a really good idea. But I am attracted to the idea because I know, like John Adams knew, there has to be a barrier there. There has to be a barrier in between the people who have something and the people who don't who might be tempted to take it away. This is a very serious issue that this country needs to talk about. And it doesn't. Just like the voting age. I mean, heck, I was reading an article not long ago. I think it was New Zealand. They're thinking about lowering the voting age to 16. That's children. Honestly, I would argue that 18-year-olds are children, especially in this day and age. 200 years ago, not really. 200 years ago, 18-year-olds. Heck, 15-year-olds 200 years ago, 250 years ago, really, almost, were, were in the military getting shot at. 15. Obviously, things have changed. So 18-year-olds are not what they used to be. So yeah, I think 18-year-olds are basically children. They're lar they live a largely sheltered existence. I mean, there's a lot of people who are 21, 22, still in college who've lived a largely sheltered existence, and I don't think they should be voting either. But there, there is this, um, there is this movement afoot to try to swing everything to the opposite end of the spectrum from this, this, this end right here, where only landholders were able to vote. There are some people who are just trying desperately to swing it to the other side where, you know, you can be a child and you can go out and vote. It's absolutely absurd. Now, why do the politicians want to do that? There's, the, the answer is obvious. They, they, they don't want people who have a stake in the system to have an overriding majority in the vote. Now, why is that? Why would they be opposed to people who have a stake in the system? That is to say, have some skin in the game, as they always say. Have property, have something to risk. Why don't they want those people to have a majority of the vote? What's the problem there? What's the problem for the politicians? You start, you start asking those kinds of questions, because those are the questions you should be asking yourself. If you're, if, you're, if you're trying to stay informed as a, as a citizen, ask yourself these questions, and eventually you'll stumble across the answer. It's not hard. It's actually pretty plain, because the answer is the same today as it was 250 years ago. It never changes with these politicians. They're the same. Politicians are the same today as they were 250 years ago, as they were 2,500 years ago. Going back 10,000 years, they never change. We only think they change, because we don't read history. But good news, this podcast is trying to fix that. And for those of you that are here listening to this podcast, I appreciate you uh, for helping in that endeavor. Interesting discussion, though, right? So think about that. What do, you, what do you think? Do you think that only landholders should be able to vote? Or do you think the vote should be open to anybody, regardless of whether they're a landholder or not? Or should we try to find some middle ground? Clearly, John Adams is clear about this, and I agree with him. There has to be a barrier to keep the rich, but not, not just the rich, but the middle of the country. There has to be barriers to keep the middle of the country from being robbed, not just the rich. He mentions the rich here and the poor because there, there is that perpetual battle between the rich and the poor. But then you have people, honestly, like John Adams, who was really not a rich guy. He didn't have one of these big, sprawling plantations that occupied a swath of the state like people in, some people in Virginia and South Carolina. He had a relatively simple life for most of his life. He was kind of a middle-of-the-road kind of guy, middle-income kind of guy, really. Educated man, lawyer. But still not a wealthy man. He actually writes about that. He writes about, like, the, the contrast between himself and some other lawyers. I forget if I read that letter on one of the John Adams episodes or not. I know I read it in my research. I don't know if I, I put it in the, uh, I put it in the bucket to not be read or to be read. I honestly cannot remember. But I remember reading a letter, it was months ago, about him talking about these wealthy lawyers versus him and how he was not rel a relatively wealthy lawyer. He was not. But understand, when he talks about rich and poor here, that's not the only people at stake here. There's also middle income folks like Mr. Adams, and probably like you, and like me, that are also under constant threat of being robbed. There needs to be barriers in place. I agree with John Adams. There has to be a barrier to protect people's property. 
But what kind of barriers do we put in there? He says an independent Senate. Well, I would argue that that independent Senate has been largely dismantled, and it only partially exists to this day because we have decided to play games with it that the Founding Fathers did not intend us to play. So do we need more barriers? Are we having a problem with this? Is it, does the United States have a problem with these barriers being effective? I would say that we do. Plus, I, I disagree with this notion that we should fly fast and loose with the rules when it comes to voting and just let anybody do it. That's why I say things like, I, I, I have a problem with people not being able to pass a basic civics exam, but be able to go out and vote. This is a problem. They have no concept what this country is, what it was, what it was supposed to be, or how it's structured, yet they go out and vote. This is a problem. That's not okay, because those people have no stake in the system, intellectually speaking. And and either, you know, sometimes a broken clock is right twice a day, but other times, you know, these people go out and they vote, and they just, they, they actively sabotage the people who do know what they're doing, who have taken the time to be invested in this country, intellectually, educationally. And, that were, and that's the same kind of thing as people being invested in this country in property, or not. Because your mindset can change. When you've got something to risk, the way you vote could very well change. When you understand just how, how much you have to risk, how much you stand to lose if something goes sideways. But yes, like I said, I, I stopped just short of saying that only landholders should be able to vote in this country. I don't believe that. Not quite. Almost. I get really close to believing that some days when I see some of the weird crap that goes on in this country, but I do not believe that. What I, what I do is I, I agree with Mr. Adams and I say that there should be barriers, probably not quite that barrier, but pretty doggone close to it. And we don't have sufficient enough barriers to prevent this robbery that John Adams is describing. We don't, in my opinion. People can disagree, and I'm fine with that. Reasonable people can agree to disagree on most things. So if you disagree with me on that, perfectly happy to listen to you. Leave a review on the podcast and let me know exactly why you disagree with me on that. And I'll bring it on the podcast. I'll talk about it in a, in a fair way. Now, let's get to the, the, real, the, really, the real substance of his concluding remarks here at least so far as John Adams documented them. And let me read this one section to you again so we can dissect this, because there's more to what this guy said. Quote, How then did it stand with our ancestors when they came over here? They could not be bound by any laws made by the British Parliament excepting those made before. I never could see any reason to allow that we are bound to any law made since. Nor could I ever make any distinction between the sorts of laws. I have ever thought we might reduce our rights to one, an exemption from all laws made by British Parliament made since the immigration of our ancestors. It follows, therefore, that all the acts of Parliament made since are violations of our rights, end quote. Even this loyalist agrees that what the Parliament is doing is illegal, and he believes that any laws passed after they left England are null and void as they pertain to the colonies, because they had no representation there. They left. And they went to the colonies, and therein found their respective assemblies when they when they created them. And that's where their representation was. That's where their consent was. That's where their rights are. That, and in the British Constitution that originated from before they left. So this, this adds added weight to these ridiculous arguments that we hear. The, the fact that we have a loyalist arguing this. A law, this man is a loyalist. He threw in with the British military... After the war got started, and he eventually left the Americas and went back to England. He left. And even he is making this argument. So the next time some incompetent buffoon tries to tell you that the Founding Fathers were the ones who committed treason, 
The Founding Fathers were the ones who violated the law. They did, oh, a bunch of elitists, didn't want to pay their taxes, shoot from the hip, just wanted to start a war, just wanted to fight the government, bunch of anarchists, whatever, what have you. Anybody who says that kind of stupid crap about the Founding Fathers, this argument, and probably the, the at least 20 or 30 other arguments that we've talked about on this podcast thus far, really just destroy that, that whole concept that people have come up with over the years. A bunch of rich old people didn't want to pay their taxes. Not true. We even have a loyalist saying that their rights have been violated. Quote, It follows, therefore, that all the acts of Parliament made sense are violations of our rights, end quote. Plain and simple, clear as day. You can't debate this crap anymore. At this point, once we get to this argument from the loyalist, the debate is over about what the Founding Fathers did and didn't do. They did not start this war. They did not start this fight. They were not wrong in what they did. Not when it came to standing their ground on their rights. We've talked about the Boston Tea Party before. That was wrong. That was clearly wrong. They shouldn't have done that. It was a relatively few people that did it. It wasn't like the Founding Fathers in unison, by the thousands, stood up and said, hey, let's do this. That's not what happened. It was a few rabble-rousers. But when the Founding Fathers stood up and drew a line in the sand on their rights, they were 100% correct. Clearly, there was no other argument to be had, except by that tyrant king and his oppressive parliament over there in Britain, passing law after law, dictate after dictate, violating the Constitution, the English Constitution. We had Benjamin Franklin say it on the podcast just a few episodes back. This was unconstitutional what the British government was doing. And the British government, shocking. They didn't care. Because the politicians never really do care, do they? Oh, there'll be a few. There'll be a few. Just like in British Parliament, there were a few good ones. There's like one or two or three good ones. The rest of them were crap. And of course, the king at the top, he was the worst of them all. He was the worst of the bunch. That man could have gone down in history as a moderating influence. He could have gone down in history of, of bringing peace between Britain and the colonies and joining them together and overcoming this dispute. Instead, all he did was pour gasoline on a fire, order his troops to do unconstitutional and illegal acts, murder his own people, and start a war with his own subjects. Mr. Galloway, unfortunately, throws in with them at the end, but his argument here is relatively sound, again, except for that disconnect between natural rights and the rights found in the English Constitution, exclusively found in the English Constitution, according to him. Other than that, he makes a fairly sound argument here. So this podcast is probably going to be a little bit long, but that's fine. We had a good discussion, I hope. And I hope you found this podcast episode enlightening. Going back and listening to Mr. Galloway and his contemporaries in the Congress, as well as Mr. Adams on this episode, tell us a little bit more and add a little bit of context to what we're talking about. And I certainly hope that you folks are going to join me on the next episode as we continue on discussing these various issues that the Founding Fathers would bring up. Everything from voting to natural rights, and beyond. The Declaration of Independence, and everything that pertains to it so much ties in with the Declaration of Independence. We will march on on this podcast talking about the Founding Fathers, because that's what we do. is a very important subject matter. Very important indeed. And as always, again, if you want to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, uh, if you're so able, uh, if you have access to Apple Podcasts, go ahead and do so. And I will, uh, I will read any of those reviews, bring them onto the podcast, and discuss them. Otherwise, we'll continue marching forward, and I've got some uh, good material coming up as far as the letters go. Uh, some pretty good stuff, I think, on the way, you know, down the line. Uh, I've been reading some stuff recently that I think is going to be uh, a good addition to the podcast 
as these episodes march onward. I appreciate you joining me. As always, I appreciate you getting the, the word out about the episodes, about this podcast, so that others can join us and uh, enjoy this content. And like I said before, you know, if you want to try to advocate for this podcast to other people, this is the easiest way you can study this material. I mean, you can spend hours and hours and hours just digging up a couple of letters, or you can let me do it for you, and we can talk about them. And I can just read them to you, and we can talk about the context around it and have some good fun doing that. So I will see you all here on the next episode, I hope. And with all of that said, this is Roman signing off. Thank you.